Good morning. Somewhere in my post-secondary education, I remember a professor mentioning that one of the theories of how to look at history focused on the idea of the great man or the hero. That is, that history was moved not so much by events and ideologies as by individuals who were kind of pivot points that changed the world, or at least they're part of the world. People like Martin Luther, or in a Manitoba context, maybe Nellie McClung. I don't know if that's the right way to do history as a discipline, but there's a part of it that strikes me as a very Christian way of looking at things, that individuals made in God's image are ultimately more important than external events, whether or not it is because of their own exceptional skills and character, or more likely, just because they follow God's call at a key turn. We have many examples where scripture tells us that God specifically raised up men and women to be those pivot points in both global and local ways. Remember, for instance, what Mordecai said to Esther when the Jews were in peril. Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for just such a time as this. In the Christmas story, the great moment in our world's history, we are, after all, on the verge of 2022 AD. Talk about a pivot point, a before and an after. Apart from Christ, of course, himself, of course, Mary is the hero of the story, isn't she? She's visited in a marvelous and miraculous way by Gabriel himself, an archangel. It is her yes that begins the incarnation, that changes the whole story. In Christian art, she is front and center, the lead actor, as she should be. Nevertheless, there is another person in this story who we focus on today, a supporting player, not front and center, but on the sidelines, off in the corner, saying his more ordinary, but still essential, yes, in obedience to God. Today, we will consider Joseph. Let's pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight as we focus on Joseph, your servant and our example. Bobby read the familiar words from, this, uh, from the book of Matthew about Mary's pregnancy, Joseph's dream, and Jesus' birth. I'll continue with Matthew a little bit, beginning at verse 13, to get a little bit of the rest of the story. Now, when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And continuing on at verse 19, Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream 
he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. So what do we know about Joseph? He's often called Joseph the Worker. The Catholic Church considers him one of the patron saints of Canada. The book of Luke tends to focus on Mary, but Matthew begins the story of Jesus with Joseph, and that's where we get most of our information about him. He's of the lineage of Abraham and David, and he's introduced to us as the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Note, he's very clearly not called the father of Jesus, consistent with the church's teaching about the virgin birth. We learn that he is betrothed to Mary, but the marriage has not been consummated. Therefore, when he discovers she is pregnant, he assumes, naturally, that Mary has been unfaithful and so plans to divorce her quietly. And so the first thing we learn is that he is a good and decent man, not vindictive, because even in the midst of her apparent betrayal, he does not seek to add to her shame. And then an angel speaks to him in a dream, and he learns that Mary has not been unfaithful, and he trusts God and marries her after all, and promises to raise the child as his own. After Jesus is born, he has more dreams, all about keeping the child and his mother safe. It's never about him. It's always about his responsibilities to others. They escape to Egypt as refugees, then return to Israel, and specifically to Galilee, when Herod has died, and they will be safe. And so we learn that Joseph is not just a good man, but a godly and faithful man. He trusts that God is active in his life, and so is able to hear God's direction when it comes, in a dream. And he is a man who obeys, so far as he knows, each step of the way. Luke adds a bit more detail about Joseph. He marvels with Mary at the prophecy of Simeon at the presentation in the temple. And in the next picture, which is Rembrandt, all the light is on Mary. You can just see him out there in the background. He is a concerned parent when Jesus stays behind in the temple in Jerusalem as a precocious 12-year-old. But by the time Jesus begins his adult ministry, Joseph is not just out of the limelight. He's out of the picture altogether. Church tradition, reflected in most of the nativity art, depicts Jesus, Joseph as much older than Mary. Perhaps he's even a widower when he marries her. And so we assume he has died by this point. In any case, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, only Mary is present. Yet scripture tells us one more thing about Joseph at this point. When Jesus begins his ministry, Matthew records that many are amazed at Jesus' authority in teaching, not least because Jesus is a carpenter's son. This is where we discover Joseph's profession. That's the only scriptural reference to Joseph and by extension Jesus as a carpenter. And so the final thing we learn is that Joseph is not just a good and godly man, but that in all outward ways, he is an ordinary man, just a guy, not on any external appearance, one of the, one of the great men of history 
with special talents and abilities who will change the world. There is no one who says, well, no wonder Jesus teaches with such authority. Look at who raised him. He's Joseph's boy after all. No. Part of the astonishment people have at the beginning of his ministry is that such authority has come from such an average, even humble home. He's just the carpenter's son from Nazareth. And yet, here we are, honoring St. Joseph. There he is in the stained glass, the worker, the ordinary guy, chosen by God to be the husband and protector of Mary and her son. It's a supporting role, but it is also pivotal in God's plan. That's the overview. Jesus is this ordinary man, yet with his own holy role in our history. How does he do it? What can we learn from it? I'm going to propose to you that at least part of the story is simply that he follows through on his promises. He knows what it is to set his will on the task before him, to do his duty, to keep his word, and to trust God for the outcome. Let's look more closely at Joseph's initial response to the news of Mary's pregnancy. When he learns of this, he is already betrothed to her. In that culture, they are legally bound already to marry. The vows and promises of faithfulness are already in place. He only moves to divorce her because he understandably thinks that she has broken her vows to him. And in that circumstance, he would be released from his to her. But the angel comes to him in a dream and says that she has not been unfaithful, she has not betrayed him, she has not broken her vows. And so Joseph, in other words, is not asked to accept something brand new, a miracle in his own life and body like Mary is, but he is asked to keep a vow that he has already made. Yet who would blame Joseph for wanting to back out? This can hardly be what he thought he was signing up for. He had promised to be a husband to Mary, yes. Implicit in that, he had promised to raise and care for children that might come, yes. But like this? Instead of a normal married life, almost from the beginning, he's dealing with a damaged reputation for his new bride, and of course for himself too. He's either the one who took advantage of this young girl, or is the poor dupe raising some other man's child? His life is utterly disrupted and in physical danger, so much that they all have to escape to a faraway land. And then, as they move back to a semblance of normal in Galilee, they raise this child with only glimmers of who he is and what is to be. When he signed up for marriage to Mary, did he ever imagine that this was part of the deal? And yet he continued, continues. He keeps his promises even when it's hard. Finally, recall that Joseph never even really sees the results of his faithfulness. At the time of his death, before Jesus begins his ministry, he really has no idea whether it's been worth it. At this point, Jesus is still the carpenter's son from Nazareth. Simeon had promised, he is a light to reveal God to the nations and the glory of your people Israel. Really? Not that Joseph ever knew. 
at least not from external circumstances, not apart from the eyes of faith. We too make vows in our lives. The most obvious one for many of us is a marriage vow. The traditional vows have husbands and wives promise to each other to be together for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do they part. John has performed countless weddings, and I've heard these vows or variations of them many times. And I can tell you that every person who has made these promises, including the one I see in the mirror in the more, every morning, though we, we sincerely mean them, we're sure of that, but really, in the joy of the wedding day, each of us expects that, of course, things will be better, not worse. Of course, they will be, if not rich, we will be at least financially secure, certainly not poorer. Of course, loving and cherishing will come easily. In their youth and vigor, health is usually just assumed. And death separating us? That question is a million miles away. And rightly. You should feel that way on your wedding day. You should celebrate this great good thing of marriage. It should be a hopeful and happy day. Yet those of us with a few years under our belts know that life is not always or ever that straightforward. And that is exactly why it's so important to make those hard promises on those days of celebration so that they are ready when things are difficult. There's a Christmas, Christmas party I've gone to pretty much every year for almost three decades. That was one of the losses of last year with COVID. We had to abandon that. But for almost three decades, I've been getting together with a really relatively small group of couples. And just in that ordinary small collection of people, there are those who have dealt with in their marriages with chronic and degenerative illness in a spouse a cancer diagnosis less than a year after a wedding, a child with a life-altering genetic challenge, job losses, even a bankruptcy, a divorce, and now, as we grow older, the specter of knowing more deeply that one day death will separate us. It was right and good that we celebrated with joy as we made our vows on our wedding days. Yet it was also right and good that we made those hard promises in the presence of God's people to be ready for the hard times. Like Joseph, we didn't realize all that we were signing up for. But like Joseph, Joseph those of us who are married need to be reminded by scripture, by the encouragement of friends, by angels and dreams if necessary, that we have made our vows and that even when it is hard, we need to keep our word, God being our helper. We need to keep our vows. We need to be faithful. We need to be like Joseph. There is another public vow that most of us here have made, and that is the vow we make in baptism. In evangelical churches, we may not always say formal words like in a marriage ceremony, but in baptism, we basically promise to renounce Satan and sin. We publicly state that we believe in God and the Christian gospel, 
and that we intend to follow Christ in obedience all the days of our lives. When I was baptized, although this was a statement of commitment, baptism or perhaps confirmation were often also simply rites of passage, something expected at a certain age because this was, an occur this was occurring in a culture that was at least nominally Christian. But we're pretty much post-Christian now, aren't we? Or at least that's where we're headed, if not totally there yet. Increasingly, Christian faith is not just irrelevant in our society, but may even be despised and something that we almost feel like we should apologize for. Small example. When I first started my career, my resumes all mentioned volunteer church work. By the end, when I was polishing up my CV, thought twice about that. I wondered if I should leave out references to post-secondary Christian education. How, how would this be perceived? When I was baptized in the Assiniboine River as a teenager, witnessed by friends, my church family, and even a few cows, as I recall, I didn't think I was signing up for that. And yet here we are. I am a Christian, and I promise to follow Christ. So if things are sometimes pleasant or uncomfortable, what will I do? Will I downplay my faith in small compromises to try to avoid difficulties? Will I try to minimize the areas of cultural conflict to avoid embarrassment? Or will I stay the course? Will I keep my baptismal vows? Because whether or not I was paying attention, this was indeed exactly what I signed up for. The de-Christianization of our society reveals an opportunity for the church's faithfulness to be tried and tested. It reveals an opportunity for me to be tried and tested, and thereby to either fall away or to grow in goodness and holiness, even in my ordinary life, even if I never see obvious results, like Joseph. Joseph is not the star of the Christmas story. He's the old guy in the background, pointing to the Lord. You can see that in there. You see his hand reach. All the light is on Mary and the baby, but there he is. And in the end, he too wears a halo. He too plays his own pivotal role in the great story and so shares in the honor and glory, not as the great hero, but still as a key player in the background. Let us, we ordinary people, follow his example this Christmas tide. Let us keep our vows imperfectly, yes, but with God as our helper, we too will point to the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we know we are a fallen people. We know we fail to live up to our vows and are tempted often to hunt for an easier way out. Remind us, Lord Jesus, that you are faithful even when we are not and are able to help us. Help us learn as you did from your earthly father, St. Joseph. We pray in your holy name, Lord Jesus, at this Christmas time. Amen.